You're listening to Berlin Psychoanalytic Podcast. In this episode, we are joined by Professor Dr. Michael Buchholz discussing paradox and metaphor. This is, with what I want to begin, the clinical interest is, of course, that metaphors are needed in order to express paradoxes, human paradoxes, unsolvable situations, at least logically unsolvable situations in human life. Here's an example of one of Freudian's metaphors. If I cannot move the upper world, I will shake the underworld. Upper world, underworld. Taken from Virgil, this maxim was used by Ferdinand Lazal, the founder of German Social Democratic Party, for the social drama, and then Freud used it as a motto for the interpretation of dreams. So it is clear what his program is to understand human psyche as derived from understanding social relationships, the underworld and the upper world. My thesis are that human paradox can be articulated by metaphor. The therapeutic task is to make the paradox perceptible. Freud's thesis was about psychic experience. One can probably talk in metaphors only. And there is a warning, of course. Don't take the metaphor for the subject in itself. You have to analyze a metaphor and not only use it. My way here is the thesis of Freud that the, body, that the ego is a bodily one. And I want to elaborate on this not fully executed program by two approaches. The first is from a phenomenolo phenomenology of conversation. And then what follows is the anal analysis of metaphor. Because Freud's thesis refers to the body, there's a huge chance for psychoanalysis to join all these huge embodiment approaches which appear in social theory, in cognitive neurological theory. Embodiment is a very prominent program in many branches. Yeah? And one who Uh, draw on that uh, program was one, one of the founders of the Chicago, Chicago School of Social Sciences, Irving Goffman. Goffman is, in social science theory, one of the authors of the same rank as Freud is. It's a basic reading. And I can only advise you to read him if I don't know if there's a Turkish translation, but perhaps some of you can make the English or American books available. Goffman is so full of detailed, detailed observations in everyday life which can be easily transported into a therapeutic practice that one should not omit, omit this experience. Here's a quote of him. Persons, when they meet, must sense that they are close enough to be perceived in whatever they are doing, including the experiencing of others, and close enough to be perceived in this sensing of being perceived. <coughs> so, let's begin. Keep this, please, in mind. I come back to that. Let's begin with a question. How do we realize something as real? I make a very simple thought experiment, which is taken from 
many lectures and observations of children and from baby watchers theory and you see Babies observe something. Don't, don't let's say babies, uh, more toddlers. Seven-month-old babies who can move on four legs on the floor. And, and sometimes stand up and a little bit uh, instable, instable, but then they fall back on, on their, on their uh, four legs. And they see a ball there. And what do they make to test if that ball is really is real or only an imagination? They see it and they tap to it. The ball is a perceptual object and they have a first sense to see it and a second sense and they must integrate these senses together. The second sense is of course the exertion it needs to make a movement to the ball in order to overcome the distance and then tap with the hand to the ball and see the ball rolling away. So obviously the ball is a real object. What baby watchers have done is that they did not um, expose toddlers to real balls but to video screens where a ball, where, where a ball is seen. And then the babies move to the, to the screen where the ball, ball is seen and they, they touch on the, on the screen and obviously the haptic experience in the hands is completely different. They know that they feel something which should be round. And this is irritating. And what we can learn that under normal, under normal circumstances we perceive something as real then when we have one channel, one sense channel, and this, this sense channel is confirmed by another one. This is something which not only babies do. Lawyers and judges in court have the rule, one witness is no witness. What one witness tells must be confirmed by a second witness. The second witness is one of the, the, eye, of one of the judge's eyes. So, I call this the bifocal triad. Let's imagine the baby is overnight, has slept, awakening the next morning and sees a ball again. What is then happening? It looks like as if this is only a repetition, but a precise analysis shows something is different. The following day, the baby sees the ball, the perceptual object, first sense, second sense, combination of, bo of both and integration, so all is the same. But in the background, there appears something, the memory of the ball yesterday, and the central experience yesterday, and the integration of both from yesterday. In order to make the experience of saying this is today and this is yesterday, another cognitive calculation, which is called comparison, is required. I must compare my yesterday experience with today. And if I do this, I must realize that yesterday, at least for a minute, I must realize yesterday I must have been the same person as I am now. Otherwise, I could not calculate this as the same experience that I had. So in this moment, we do not only have a repetition, but 
it dawns to the toddler that there is something new, what baby watchers call the proto-self, the first figure of becoming a self. This memory, of course, disappears, appears a month later, and so on. But in these um, paradigmatic situations, one can think that self-experience begins to emerge. This is the eccentric triad of self-reference. Let's transfer this thinking to a meeting of two persons. Two persons unknown to each other, for instance, meeting in an elevator or in a bus or uh, wherever you, this might happen. What ha is observable what they do? One person, the other person, standing near in a distance of less than one meter. So looking at each other, the other looking at me, and then realizing that the other is looking at me. First glance, second glance. And what is done then if they want to begin a conversation? Let's change the situation for a moment. You are invited the first time to, to a person you do not know very well. The door is opened. You enter and you say hello or good day or whatever you say. And then at least you say something, where is the wardrobe? So, or... Oh, when you have done your, your clothes from your body, you say, oh, look here, what a wonderful picture you have here, or something like that. And your host can say, yes, I bought it in the gallery so-and-so, and the guy in the gallery, uh, he, uh, he's a friend of mine, and, and so on. And immediately happens what I describe as follows. The perceptual object is addressed by both they refer both to one perceptual object. This makes the integration. And then the perceptual object is overlaid by a, by a conversational object, a picture or the wardrobe or whatever. And in the moment, a con conversational object is agreed by both in the moment of a common experience. Then a link to very many other objects, the gallerist who fell in love with someone or so, stories can be told. These three steps, perceptual object, conversational object, and linking with other conversational objects, form the base for our standard routines of how we make sure that we are in one world, that we do not live in different worlds. Of course, these processes can be disturbed severely, but I will not talk about this. So, this common ground, as linguists say, is something where one imagines a kind of territory. If you have a common ground, then you think of something where you can build your house on it. I prefer to talk of doing common ground. Common ground is no object, it's an activity which people, two people do together. You can have a perceptual world together, mutually, and then you make sure that you are on a common ground. And this makes possible a we experience. We two are for a moment together. We are present and we are existent, otherwise we could not share the common world together. 
So these dimensions on which people, philosophers, talk so much about presence and existence and so on is recreated from second to second and it's no structural dimension if we look on the conversation that can be analyzed as I try to do it here. There's a definition of common ground by one of the leading linguists. He says, the pursuit and exploitation of mutual knowledge, shared expectations and other types of common ground not only serves the mutual management of referential information, but has, has important consequences in the realm of social interpersonal affiliation. The informational and social affiliational functions of common ground are closely interlinked. Not only information, but social relationships count here. And I want to bring to you a quote from Merleau-Ponty, one of the most interesting, interesting uh, philosophers. Uh, he, for instance, writes about we touch the world with our voices and the world is touched by us. If we think of our voices, we are in the world of embodiment. We are doing embodied therapy by speaking with and to patients. And we have heard by Rob Hale this morning how deep this experience can, uh, can touch us. And Merleau-Ponty says, when I press my two hands together, it is not a matter of two sensations felt together as one perceives two objects placed side by side but an, ambig an ambiguous setup in which both hands can alternate the role of touching and being touched. So if I feel both hands, the difference between activity and passivity vanishes. Touching and being touched is for a moment the same. This embodied experience, experience we learned this morning by Rob Hale, um, I promise to show you um, uh, a short, a very short video. This is the patient, female patient, and the therapist here uh, made unrecognizable. And I cannot play it to you because it doesn't work here. But you wouldn't even hear anything because it's a, it's a pause. They do not speak. When you, what we made is on the original. Uh, audio escape, we fixed an electronic point here on the video, not on the bodies. On the video, after the, after the session was done, we fixed it here, and another electronic point here, so that one can see the chest moving up and down. And what we get then, when we calculate what the movements here is, in the beginning, the red line is the movement of the patient, the green line. Can you see that? No? no? no. <coughs> Sorry. Hmm? You can see. Okay. The green line is that of the therapist. You see, here the patient makes a movement uh, with the whole body, sitting, turning around, so we cannot see the, the, uh, the, the breathing of both. But here we see... The therapist, the patient starts, and the green line follows. Then they uh, outhale and inhale and outhale and inhale and outhale and inhale. And then something happens here. 
something happens here. I have to use the mic here. Okay. Something happens, happens here that this synchronization of about nine, nine, nine seconds is disturbed and we wondered why. We did not see this by our blank eyes before. This instrument made it visible to us. And what we can see is, I show you another, another graph here. Can you see that better here? Oh, yeah. No. Forgive me. I'll find it. Here. Yeah. So, we made here the green and red points. Uh, can you detect them? Do you see them? Yeah? They are going always parallel, parallel, parallel. Parallel, parallel. And here suddenly something happens that they are desynchronized one is up and the other is down and this here one is up one and the other is down up and down this is a case of desynchronization which we observed and this is give me a second The same, the same curve in a, in, in a, in a standard presentation. Yeah. What happened? I told you in, 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 the, in the morning, the patient posed the question, what, to the therapist? And the therapist does not answer. There's no resonance, no verbal resonance between the two. And then the patient looks down, and after five or six, where the, where the breathing goes synchron, synchronous to both of them, and then the patient looks after five seconds to the therapist again. Doesn't he say a word? So, and then the therapist desynchronizes the breathing. Yeah? This is a kind of, as, as I feel, very interesting observation. We didn't know that before, and we have not found it described in the literature, because in pauses, obviously, school age, and had been up to something, such as hiding her father's new papers or his slippers when he comes home, and he found about that, he told her off in a playful manner and started to play tag with her. She ran off up the stairs in the single family house she had won when she managed to get to her room, to her room and to shut the door in her father's face. He had to surrender with a smile and toddle off back downstairs. As a Freudian psychoanalyst, I could hardly suppress the Oedipal interpretation of this sequence, wherein she is daddy's little girl, but this is not the thought I want to pursue here. One moment, she evades in a communicative situation with me. The next moment is all about a bodily escape from her father. The form of movement is the same in both instances. It is a kind of hunt, of darting sideways, a similar emotional cocktail of pleasure and dangerous thrill, an amusing yet somewhat annoying game. It is a two-person game. It is pleasurable ex escaping from her father and from the remarks of the therapist. It is all about the pleasure of interpretation and the father's refraining from the hunt. 
while her father gets the door shut in his face. In the analytical session, the therapist nearly forgets the very thing he just said because the patient changes the subject. A paradox, again, is distinctly revealed here, too. A defeat to get caught would be a victory because the girl would end up in daddy's arms. The victorious escape from the hunter would equally defeat because then the nice game would be over. The catching of daddy's little girl, thus a successful hunt, would, by the same token, thwart the continuation of the hunter's amusement. So what we have is frames in conflict. The relationship is a game. The game is a hunt, and I mean with the relationship, the relationship to her father and to me. The game is a hunt. The game is a love play, embodied between father and daughter. And the therapy is a father-daughter game. And the conclusion is, the the therapy is a communicative father and daughter love play. Not an embodied one, but you see the mental kinetics, the communicative choreography in that behavior. What is bodily movement in one scene has its equivalent in the other scene, yet in a different medium, the medium of communications. Bodily kinetics is the image source for mental kinetics. Between the two, we find metaphorical projection, but how exactly are we to picture this? We are moving vertically and horizontally. Through our language, through our upright posture, and through the inextricable inextricable paradoxes of autonomy and connectedness. Truth, as Winnicott once said, to us human beings, Truth is only true when it is disguised as metaphor and paradox. Thank you for listening. For more content, subscribe to our podcast or find us on our YouTube channel. Psychoanalysis should be free.